Hello, and welcome to Political World, the discussion programme that takes a look at places and systems around the globe. I'm Sam. And I'm Zisheng. This week, Malaysia. We'll first, as always, take a broad look before searching the history of colonisation for clues of today's issues. And finally, discussing the contemporary issues in Malaysia from the 1MDB scandal, the split in the ruling party, and the elections to come. So, Zisheng, why do we talk, need to talk about Malaysia? Malaysia's great, Malaysia's an <laughs> interesting case study and because we are a former British colony, a lot of our democratic systems are a heritage of that. So I think a lot of the developments recently in Malaysia reflect a larger um, trend that we see around the world and it's, it's just exciting. Yeah, I mean, there's the big corruption scandal with the 1MDB and the elections um, and the ruling party, which has been in power since independence, which we will come on to. It, it looks like it's falling back in the polls for the for really the first time. So, yeah. So let's discuss Malaysia broadly. Where is it? It's in Southeast Asia, isn't it? Yep. So we are located at the South China Sea. So Singapore is just below us and Thailand is north of us and... Indonesia is another neighbouring country, as well as the Philippines. Yeah, yeah, so there's like two big blocks in Malaysia. One of bits tacked on to the bit after Thailand, although you probably wouldn't want to call And the other bit is on the island of Borneo. Yep. So um, the island that borders Thailand and Singapore, that's Peninsula Malaysia, or also known as West Malaysia. Mm-hmm. While the other, the other island on the east um, in Borneo is, uh, it consists of two states, Sabah and Sarawak. Uh, and but they were all variously colonized by the British at some yeah. point. Uh, and uh, the bit on Borneo obviously borders Indonesia. Yeah. So it's becoming a fairly wealthy country for for the region uh, with a HDI of zero point seven nine, a GDP per capita PPP of uh, thirty thousand dollars. But but it remains quite unequal, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. Um, with a Gini of. Uh, about Four. 40. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, and, and the distribution is really, the rural areas are poor, the cities yep. are where the wealthy metropolitan uh, professionals are. Yep. There's, there's also quite some inequality between West Malaysia and East Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So East Malaysia has been traditionally known for its rich, rich natural resources. And in some ways we have fell victim to the resource curse. So lots of oil, but sort of these resources are controlled by the elites and they don't really trickle down to the indigenous natives in Sabah and Sarawak. Okay. And so the population is about 31 million, which for the, for the region is quite small because like Vietnam's 90 million, Indonesia is like hundreds of million. Mm-hmm. So, but, but despite this, Malaysia really has a big geopolitical role. Yep. We are one of the founding members of ASEAN which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. and what, Which is like the, you know, it's not, not quite the EU or the African yeah. Union, but it's the, the equivalent in Asia. You know, it's a big yep. geopolitical block. And so in terms of this population, there's a big ethnic uh, array. You know, there's about 50% Malay and, and 12% other indigenous groups, mm-hmm. which you can sort of uh, move together in some sense. Uh, but then a good 20% Chinese and uh, 7 or so percent Indian. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and this is a result of the British yep. allowing basically free movement into Malaysia uh, to work. And the religious divide also goes through this ethnic divide, doesn't it? Because the Malay population are automatically considered by the 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 law in Malaysia to be um, Muslims. Yes. And they can't become not Muslims, yeah. um, even if they're non-believers. So there has been a recent court ruling. While in the constitution, it doesn't say you can't um, convert out of Islam explicitly, but the existing powers in play make it very hard um, for anyone to convert out of Islam. And, and and this is important because although there's a British common law kind of style legal system, there's also a parallel Sharia law yes, system yeah. for Malay Muslims. Yeah. And the Sharia law decides cases of uh, conversion. Okay. And so along with obviously the 60% Malay Muslim... So then, the 50% are Malays, whereas when we sort of categorize the 60%, it's Malays and indigenous natives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the political term is, they're, they're called the Bumi Putras, okay. which if you translate it directly from Malay, it means prince of the earth. So they are sort of the natives of the land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So along with uh, the, the Muslims, there is also a 20% Buddhist mm-hmm. population and a 10% Christian and even a 6% Hindu population. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's quite uh, divided on these sense. Um, and the main language is Malay, yep. the official language. Um, but English still has a key role in the economic hubs, doesn't it? Because yeah. as a leftover. In fact, in Sabah and Sarawak, so under the Malaysia Agreement, um, the official language just for Sabah and Sarawak are both Malay and English, actually, mm-hmm. but not on not in West Malaysia. Mm. Mm-hmm. But people still the, the proficiency in English is still very high. Yeah. Um. So, who's in charge? So there's the king that is the head of state. Yep. And the king is an elected monarch. Yeah. Who is elected by the sultans of the different Malaysian states. Yep. So we are a constitutional monarchy. So the the Malay Conference of Rulers, um, which the body is called, uh, consists of nine Malay sultans from nine different states. And each sultan will be elected by the Malay Conference of Rulers um, to, to be king uh, yeah, once so every five years. So, it's so it's every five, five years from, they re-elect the king. Yeah. So the king is not for life. It's, yeah. uh, and it's one of the sultans yeah. and they elect among themselves. Yeah. Sort, of, sort of like how the House of Lords works. in Britain. Yep. And where, where do the, the, the sultans derive their power? So it's in, it's in the constitution, mm-hmm. um, specifically Article 153. So they are sort of the guardians of special rights that are given to the Malays and the natives. It's been part of the agreement since um, the constitution was... Um, because they were the founded. rulers yeah, before, before the it. British turned up. Yeah. And then the British made deals with them and they, they yeah. maintained their position. and Yeah. So um, th- is there a sort of conflict between these uh, hereditary sultans and the elected political system? Not really. Um, there is still a lot of respect uh, and the king, the sultans are still uh, held... Uh, in high regard, mm-hmm. so most of them 
have not really said a lot or in, got themselves involved in politics per se, but there have been sultans recently, like um, the sultan of the state of Johor. He has been quite vocal recently and he's a very popular ruler in, in the state. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the king has quite significant power as uh, constitutionally. Yep. Whether, whether he exercises it or not is yep. a different matter, much like the queen in Britain. Mm-hmm. But like he could break up parliament if he chose to or stuff like that. Yep. Um, which is is interesting. So, but who's the head of government? It's uh, well, it's currently Najib Razak. Yep. Um, who is the head of the ruling coalition? Um, but the coalition is well, the parties in Malaysia. There are lots of small parties, and they mainly form into alliances to run for elections. Right. Yep. Um, so that's the interesting part about Malaysia. We have pre-electoral coalitions instead of post-electoral coalitions. So. Most of the traditional parties have been formed um, via ethnic or racial lines. So each party has sort of represented their respective races. Be that Chinese, Indian or Malay. So because our electoral system is a majoritarian first-past-the-post system, so in that sense... Basically, they took Westminster and stuck it in Malaysia. Yeah. (laughs) So they organized themselves into two main big co- coalitions now. And, and the main one has always been run by UMNO, which is the United Malays National Organization, yep. um, which I'm sure we will speak an awful lot about. Um, and so in terms of Freedom House, it's partly free. They, they say that the press is completely not free and elections are very dodgy because there's not high standards of practice mm-hmm. um, in terms of gathering votes, but also the first-past-the-post system means that gerrymandering is so widespread um, with the ruling government, and that's why UMNO has managed to stay in power so long, uh, along with various other reasons. So let's find out how UMNO got their power and the the history, why why Malaysia is as it is today. So let's delve into the history. Okay. So, <clears throat> historically, uh, Malaysia was part of several Asian empires, some based in Malaysia, some. And since the 14th century, uh, Islam spread through the region. Yep. And then the Europeans turned up, the Dutch and Portuguese primarily, because mm-hmm. the Dutch were dominating bits of the region. And then the British turn up in 1786 and gradually start acquiring bits of land through deals, through protectorates, through colonies. Yep. And it lots of little bits, and it gradually builds up to... What is today Malaysia? Yeah, they, they they did deals with the sultans particularly, and that helped secure the sultan's position today. Um, and economically, they were there for the gold and tin, and a bit of rubber and the spice trade as well. Yeah, and that, then they brought in the migrant workers. Yep. So you get this ethnically divided, or maybe ethnically a multicultural society, uh, one might prefer. And so. So Britain has acquired most of it by the time of the Second World War, really. Yep. Um, but it's not it's not one federation. Um, it's not one one colony. It's bits of colonies, right? Yep. So it started off with the port cities of Penang, Malacca, and Singapore. So that was where their interest in the Malay Peninsula started. We, we should and note Singapore is currently not part of Malaysia. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but yes. So after that they sort of started to gain influence in the other states. And by 19, if I'm not wrong, after the Second World War in 1945, they, when the Japanese surrendered and when they sort of came back, 
they wanted to establish the Malayan because the Japanese took over Malaysia for three years yeah and it's quite interesting because whereas Britain saw them as the rulers of the this multi-ethnic area the Japanese saw them as uh, saw saw themselves as liberators of the Malay yeah uh, people from Britain's uh, tyrannical uh, multicultural society yeah uh, because the British were primarily... I mean, the British were still racist, let's not get it wrong. Um, they certainly gave the jo- the police and security jobs to the indigenous Malay groups. Um, but they were, they were broadly concerned with economics, whereas the Japanese had a very much ethnic interpretation of the situation. It was more of an ideological um, agenda. So the big rhetoric back then was... Asians for Asians. That's why um, the the people of Malaya saw saw the Japanese as their liberators. But the British had divide and rule agenda, which well they brought in the economic migrants from China and India. Society was still very polarized, and industries and sectors were also very much based on racial lines. So the the Chinese were mainly businessmen, and they. They were tin miners, whereas the Malays they were administrators. They were uh, their economy. Their economy was more based on agriculture, whereas the Indians were brought in to um, plant and tap rubber. So and so the the ethnic divides in parties and that continue to this day yeah. are very much a result of this kind of economic divide. Of, yeah. Uh, or uh, you know, e- economic uh, division of labour yeah. and ethnic division of labour by the British colonialists. Yeah. So Britain after the Second World War have this idea of creating one united colony, don't they? Yeah. Um, but p- people aren't really on board initially, and a lot of people want independence. And in 1946, UMNO is founded. Yeah. Um, and they 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 want the other ethnicities to have lower position initially, don't they? They're initially only for indigenous rights. Because they saw it as the Malay Peninsula. Mm -hmm. They basically, it wasn't that big of the agenda, if if I'm not mistaken. It was more the Malays against the British or the Malays against Western colonization. Well, because in 1948... The Federation of Malaya is created, which is only the bit that was connected to Thailand, though, not the other bit that's Borneo. Yeah. But, so, and they were created as a protectorate of Britain. So they controlled everything domestically except foreign policy. Mm-hmm. So then, then there needs to be elections. Who's going to govern this? But additional problems are caused uh, because there's an uprising from the Malayan Communist Party, which yeah. is a primarily Chinese yeah. group. Um, they look at Mao and go, well, hey. Um, <laughs> And and so this starts a big insurgency, and there is a guerrilla warfare, yeah. and this goes on for ages. It's about uh, it was declared as a state of emergency for about twelve years, from nineteen forty eight to nineteen sixty. So even after um, the Malay Federation gained their independence in nineteen fifty seven, there was still a state of emergency because the war didn't really sort of ended completely. But so. There are several other parties formed, including the Malayan Chinese Association, which is partly a backlash against the Communist Party, yep. um, which is because they want to set a moderate uh, kind of standard. And there's a similar party formed for Indians, and they club they club together with UMNO and form what 
becomes the ruling alliance, really. Yeah. Um, and the first elections happen in 1955. Yep. Um, whilst Britain is still the colonising power. And the alliance win by 81% because they've got all ethnic bases covered. Yep. And so independence comes in 1957 for Malaya, and then British Borneo joins in 1963. Yes, that's right. So, and then Umno dominates that as well. You know, there's not... Is, is there a big divide in terms of the how bit, the two bits of Malaysia vote? So, because the, the seats in East Malaysia or Borneo, they were still mainly rural, and they were mainly made up of indigenous um, races... Upno doesn't actually um, have contest in Borneo. There are actually parties that are now part of the alliance, but they also represent the the native tribes and races in Sabah and Sarawak. And, and Borneo has a much smaller population. Yeah, so they are less dense. Electorally, they're not as significant. Now, that's 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 quite debatable because as as what you mentioned about gerrymandering and all that. <laughs> The seats or the constituencies in Borneo are way smaller than the traditional urban seats in, in West Malaysia. So they count for more. Like your vote counts <laughs> for more in, in East Malaysia because the ruling party has had a lot of grip. Like living on the Shetlands, really. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the 1969 election is a turning point, is yep. it not? Um well, what? So the alliance wins the majority of seats, but they don't win the majority of the vote for the first time. And this has lots of interesting implications in terms of domestic situations. Do so it was the first time that they lost um, their two-thirds in parliament. So they still were elected as the ruling party. Yeah, but it was um, just right after the elections, um, there are a lot of racial riots happening in um, Kuala Lumpur and most of the big states and it's a clash between APNO and the Democratic Action Party mainly which is has historically been the main opposition yeah mm-hmm. and, and this causes the alliance to sort of rebrand and regroup uh, which parties are part of it and stuff doesn't it um, so one of the big outcomes of those racial riots were the new economic policy mm-hmm which was race-based affirmative action. And then the new economic policy isn't just that, though. It's, it's also uh, about other things, you know, race-based affirmative action. It's education in Malay, which means that yep. poor Malay people can actually understand the education because previously it was happening in English, um, yep. which helps create a professional class mm-hmm. in the long term of ethnic Malay. Yeah. Um, one of the big policies within the new economic policy was um, how there was supposed to be a minimum 30% stake for Malays in uh, local companies. Uh, Malays are uh, the Bumiputras, basically. The, yeah, the, the wide range of yeah. ethnic groups, yeah. Which sort of, which did Indigenous help... groups, sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. which did help lift a lot of Malays out of poverty, but now... It actually seems like it has sort of been a big reason why there's so much inequality among uh, within the Malays and the Bumiputras right now because um, those who benefited from, from the new economic policy have sort of used or exploited the, the system to 
control or limit wealth within their elitist circles and that's why up to today um, a lot of the rural Malays still see that they still need the policy to help lift them out of poverty. And, and this economic program is not is not just uh, based on Malay. There's big the state becomes a big actor in the economy, and uh, they create free trade zones, and as a result, economic growth does happen. Yep, it is very significant for Malaysia. It, it's one of the reasons why it's reasonably you know it's a it's not a poor country anymore. Yep. I mean, maybe it's not a rich country, but it, it's in much better state than it was. Yeah, we have to give credit uh, where it's due for the for the NEP because when um, it was first introduced, it was quite a huge success. But now people are contending that it has overstayed its time. And well, yeah, I mean, may, maybe the fact that the state has such a big stake in the economy that its development funds can be uh, used for corruption <laughs> purposes. But I'm sure we'll discuss that. So let's. Um, so the economic. Uh, occurs happens and UMNO stays in power all this time in some form of alliance with these other ethnic blocks because yeah. parties remain firmly ethnically divided. Yeah. Um, let's let's briefly discuss the last election. So the last election was in twenty thirteen. Yeah, and the opposition grouping got fifty one percent of the vote. Yeah. So so they 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 sh- it, by a if you had a PR system they'd have won. Yeah. But they got forty four seats fewer. Um, so the National Front, which is what the UMNO coalition is currently called, uh, is still in power. Yeah. So this this really brings us forward to to the current issues. So the the opposition f- felt like they were they were hard done by by this. Yeah. I mean, I would. Um, <laughs> but you know, elections are a bit dodgy in Malaysia. Uh, I think that's fair to say, is it not? Well. On paper, the election commission is independent. It answers to parliament. But in practice, there has always been that sort of impression where it's it's sort of an agent of the state because gerrymandering or the, the recent redelineation policies, are, they seem to clearly favour the ruling coalition. So let's discuss the current issues. Let, let's begin with the one MDB scandal. Now, I'll, I'll briefly summarise it for anyone that hasn't okay. heard about this. Um, this is the scandal in Malaysia. So, one MDB is a state-owned development fund, um, wholly owned by the state. Um, and in 2015, nearly 700 million US dollars disappeared from its accounts. A US-led investigation suggests that it turned some of it turned up in the uh, an account owned by the Prime Minister Najib Razak. Yep. Um, and the PM denies the allegations of corruption, saying the money was a legal political donation from the Saudis, which actually I don't think is a very good defence, <laughs> but I'm not in Malaysian politics. Um, and the, the the government had some investigations, but they all resulted in no answers about where the money had gone and cleared the government's, government of any wrongdoing or any negligence or anything. Yeah. And so, yeah, ha- has this resonated with voters like do do people care because i know it's a big foreign policy story uh like as in the u.s the west really care they track the money the swiss that everyone's involved but do the people in malaysia care so definitely the the urban population cares um it has been 
a huge part of the political conversation now. So when when it happened, when seven hundred million US dollars went in, um, went into the prime minister's account, it the the exchange rate back then reflected in two point six billion uh, Malaysian ringgit. So uh, when you hear people talking about corruption, people always talk about the two point six billion. So it has dominated the political conversation among the urban. Um, the urban population, because obviously corruption has always been an issue, but th- this is big scale. Yeah, this is. I think the the U.S. Department of Justice called it the biggest kleptocracy case in the world so far. But, wow. Yeah, with while the urban population has been um, quite politically like enlightened about this issue, it hasn't really resonated with the rural population. So one example where I can give is um, the Sarawak election, state elections a few years ago. So the opposition went in um, with the idea like, oh, the ruling coalition has been corrupt and this is what they've done. They stole so much money through 1MDB and this is why you need change. But um, economic factors still play the bigger role. Because Sarawak is yeah. in Borneo, it's rural mainly, yeah, and, and poor. It was hard for, for, for the opposition to come across with the, the sort of idea that corruption actually does affect um, your, your living conditions and why um, the cost of living has been rising. It, it's quite a complex case, you know, yeah. it's quite difficult to explain how, you yeah. know, to rural folks, especially who obviously generally lack an educate, yeah. like a, or a, a substantial education. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> should, let's first discuss how this this played in the political sphere. Th- this actually led to, or this and other events um, led to some members of UMNO, yep. senior members, founding a new party uh, called the Malaysian United Indigenous Party. Yep. Um, which has joined part of the opposition coalition. And the the key people uh, include an ex-prime minister, although yep. I believe he's very old now, yeah. um, but he still has an awful lot of sway with voters, does he yeah. not? He's still popular. And uh, an ex-deputy prime minister from UMNO as well. Yep. So what, what are the ramifications of these parties? So because this has joined the, the opposition, you know, these are big people from UMNO, with big sway over the indigenous population, um, who who uh, who are now because obviously people gather votes ethnically. Mm-hmm. You know, we now we now have a situation where about four parties are trying to get the Malay vote, whereas yeah. previously, you know, it was one or two. Yeah. So, um, the ex prime minister, his name is uh, Mahathir Mohamad, um, or we call him Tun M. Tun is a title that is given out in Malaysia. So he still has a lot of traction with the Malay um, population because he was sort of the prime minister that brought uh, a lot of development uh, and sort of put Malaysia in the world map in his in his time as prime minister. And he has helped the opposition go into a lot of rural areas where they are now able to campaign and um just have dialogue with with the rural um, rural folk when previously with a stronghold or if you could call it the safety deposits of of the ruling ruling coalition they were they were the firm base at yeah. the bottom of yeah okay but now um, 
because um, during Tun Mahathir's time as Prime Minister, people see it as the time where a lot of these corrupt practices came into into Malaysian politics. So a lot of people um, see the opposition as turning their back against principles, their, their principles, and sort of using a popular figure to um, have a short-term goal, which is to win the elections. And mm-hmm. people are not satisfied with a 90-plus-year-old man uh, being the prime minister candidate for the opposition <laughs> right now. So it, it seems like a backward move. But, but the, the opposition got a real boost out of this. You yeah. know, I mean, we should consider the elections are coming up mm-hmm. soon and we, we don't know what will happen. I mean, normally you can predict it when a party's been in power for 60 years or whatever. um, So, I mean, in 2016, the opposition were polling at 60%, which is unprecedented, really. I mean, obviously we can't... Polls in Malaysia are not perfect by any means, and because of gerrymandering, they don't translate perfectly Mm -hmm. to seats. But 60%, you know, that puts it way ahead, um, whilst the UMNO coalition was only on 30%, I believe. Yeah. But obviously... In the year since then, you know, latest polling, they've fallen down to about 40%, but that still puts them ahead of uh, the National Front Coalition Mm -hmm. led by UMNO. Um, So, you know, clearly the ex-UMNO Prime Minister joining the opposition had a real impact. Or or do you think that impact was partly just one MDB? I think it's, it's a related issue. So after the 1MDB scandal broke out, um, the major opinion poll research body, which is called Merdeka Centre, they did an approval rating poll for the Prime Minister and it dropped to about 44%. Mm-hmm. And the whole reason why Tun Mahathir came out and started this party was because of the 1MDB scandal where he joined forces with his previous enemies in, in the opposition to sort of start a sort of safe Malaysia uh, movement. And do, do they have a different, do the opposition have a different agenda or is it just the same with slightly less corruption? So politics have not been very ideological based in Malaysia. It's the big rhetoric it's, by it's, the, po- the it's opposition. It's very ethnic. It has been it. ethnic and religious, and that's how... Uh, and we'll discuss. Yeah, yeah. but um, the, the issues that the opposition have always focused on are economic issues and how they can raise a standard of living of Malaysians. Does this uh, demand for more economic equality have an accountability effect on the UMNO coalition? Do, does it have a force that means that they can't just be completely blasé about how they rule Malaysia. They do actually have to achieve something. That's that's hard because like like what we talked about previously um the institutions that are supposed to provide the checks and balances um within the political system seem to be subservient to the executive arm of um the government. So while these issues um have become uh, more well-known to the public, it seems like there's not much change that people can expect at the moment. Because press is definitely not free in Malaysia. You know, there's censorship led by the government and stuff, which which makes getting this kind of information out more difficult. Um, But it's certainly true that the opposition are able to hold rallies. They are able to canvass for votes. You know, they're able to speak to people 
So it's not completely like a one-party state. Yeah. So I think there's one other thing we should really discuss, and that is the Islamist bloc. Okay. Um, so in the last election, the main Islamic party was part of the coalition. But in this election, I believe they're running as a separate yeah. third, which obviously in a Westminster-style system, you go, oh, no, that's just going to split the vote, mm-hmm. is it not? Yeah, because of Tun Mahathir now, the, the sort of recent analysis uh, on where the elections would be won or lost is um, within the, the Malay votes. And now with um, the Islamic party uh, being sort of a third option for the Malays, uh, and they have announced that there will be three cornered fights where they will contest uh, in seats where the opposition are contesting against the the ruling party so it seems like it it ha- it will have more negative impacts on the opposition and the, yeah because they've been the polling suggests that they've been the the umno coalition hasn't actually changed in terms of its polling position yeah. but the redist- so where the opposition was once on 60% now they're on uh, 40% mm-hmm. with the islamic faction taking 10 or 15% away from them mm-hmm. And and it's really in that opposition that, particularly because of the gerrymandered nature of the constituencies, you know, yeah. it's Umno versus everyone else, and mm-hmm. if everyone else splits off, the, what what is the ideological situation with the Islamic group? Do they want more Sharia? Do they want what? What do they want? So the big, the big agenda that they have tried to push in Parliament recently is sort of the um, how Sharia law can be sort of introduced um, in the state that they are currently ruling now, which is the state of Kelantan. It's just a more Malay first, Islam first agenda. Is this concerning given the multicultural, relatively historically reasonable state of discourse with a a secular constitution? It has ruffled the feathers of a lot of um, the other races because the rhetoric uh, has always been oh we pride ourselves in being a multicultural society that is able to tolerate our differences and yet uh, we, we are able to live harmoniously while still maintain our own ethnic identities this this sort of and by them not being in a coalition with non-islamic groups that's quite different from the other parties and that, that yeah. has gives it a quite a divisive feeling yep it does seem so there was a cimb study that was commissioned uh, and was done by uh, researchers from the university of oxford and it was quite surprising for ignorant urban uh, students like me to actually see that a lot of um, the more conservative malays um, they their conception of um, a malaysian identity still has to be primarily dominated by Malay culture and customs and speaking of the Malay language, which is clearly eye-opening for people like me because um, the rhetoric of multiculturalism and a multiracial identity for Malaysia has been always propagated by the government and quite shocking that (laughs) to find out that actually a lot of Malays don't buy into that. Mm-hmm. That, that conception of okay so what one one final question so it's a two-part question could umno lose this election and if so do you think they could concede would would they allow another party to take power or would they do some kind of i mean 
would they try and do some kind of deal to with other opposition parties to realign the electoral uh, you know results or what would they do would they just use the institutions of state to prevent democracy so i'll, I'll answer the second question first i think given the scrutiny that is um placed in in malaysia right now if they do lose they will have to concede power so i think the systems are sufficient enough to to see that they have to concede power but the the battle now is to ensure that that doesn't happen and we see a lot of um these political tricks coming coming up right now where with, they block the opposition from yeah, even being on media existing yeah, with, in holding rallies stuff like that yeah so i don't think um that they will lose power this election which is which is quite surprising but <laughs> najib has has managed to ride past the storm of 1MDB because it it broke out almost 3 years ago and yeah. um with uh he has he has managed to hold his 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 firm grip on power over the past 3 years and a lot of the uh, political analysts uh with Medeka Center like uh, what we we've mentioned just now and other independent consult consulting groups have projected in fact that there is a high chance of them regaining um two thirds their their two thirds majority in parliament mainly wow that is extreme gerrymandering <laughs> mainly because the opposition doesn't look as strong as it should be so people don't see them as a much more credible alternative at the moment um than than the sort of wave of change that people people thought would happen in the previous general election so, okay thank yeah. you very much Zhang thank you thanks for having me you've been listening to political world and if you enjoyed the program please give us a good rating it helps others find it the music is from blue dot sessions and is licensed under creative commons please join us next time on political world <laughs> <laughs>